Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with my podcast partner, Steve Crying, and this is our introduction to another of the free zone entrepreneurs that we have today. And Steve, these are exciting times. I mean, we're doing this interview and this is, you know, we're still in the 2020 year, this great disruption year, great change, great innovation year. So very, very exciting to be an entrepreneur and having prepared ourselves actually for this type of situation. You know, it is, Dan. And, you know, it's kind of a a time that I think, you know, you have people who are excited about what's going on in terms of opportunity and how accelerated the pace of a lot of both the innovation and the adoption is, especially in healthcare. But I think at the same time, there's a lot of things moving backwards. And so I think for entrepreneurs, it's an exciting time. For a lot of others, it's not. It's an incredibly difficult time. So it's actually a useful conversation today to talk to Dave Berg, I'm excited to dig in not only to his story, but how he is both, you know, looking at and seeing opportunity in a world where there is not only a tremendous amount of chaos and uncertainty in a lot of people's lives, but one that almost requires what he's providing to people in a very unique way. Yeah, I think that we're in a lot of different industries in Strategic Coach in terms of who our entrepreneurs are. But I think that probably the most important one, if we look ahead of several decades, it really comes down to healthcare, and we've been reminded where the deficiencies are this year. So it's really a pleasure to have David here, and David is a cross-border guy like I am, except we went in opposite directions. David was born in Canada and, you know, has done his major entrepreneurial work in Phoenix, and I was born in Cleveland, and I've done my major entrepreneurial work in Toronto. We're cross-border people, and you're kind of a cross-border people in terms of healthcare too, aren't you, David? Yeah, so I'll correct one little thing. I was born in Wisconsin, and then I moved to Canada, and then I moved back. And why that's important, that distinction, is because I got to play the immigrant twice, and I got to go through the immigrant's mindset when it was about hockey versus basketball, soccer versus football, and there is a mindset around assimilating and learning and understanding at a different level and and applying that understanding. And I found surprisingly when I became an immigrant again, moving back to the United States, I did very much the same things and had the same mindset that I did when I was eight, nine years old in learning the healthcare system and understanding it. Mm -hmm. I had to really understand sports differently when I was an eight-year-old. I couldn't just remember the rules and stuff mm-hmm. if I wanted to catch up fast. And same when I came to the United States as an immigrant again, I had to understand the system down here. When I reflect back, on it, I'm quite amazed at how similar the two experiences were. I just have a question to sort of get us really zeroed in here on the free zone breakthrough that you've created with your new approach to healthcare in the United States. So what you're so excited about right now, we'll go back to see how you created your capability, but what you're so excited now, just in the framework of what's happening to healthcare in the United States right now here in 2020, There has been an incredible acceleration of awareness of the problems with the U.S. healthcare system, and I suspect other healthcare systems too around the world. Matter of fact, a Canadian company is asking us to embed our capabilities, two of them actually. One of them is in Free Zone that you're aware of, Kevin Brady. But there's an incredible awareness now that's just been accelerated of the challenges in the healthcare system. Yeah. I'm really feeling great about the advantage of having Steve here because Steve is looking at healthcare in a global basis, you know. So he's got an awareness of at least 20, 25 different countries because the members of his startup health network are sending back, you know, frontline reports to him about the way it's happening in this country, this country, this country, this country. So, Steve, you have a model in your mind for a healthcare transformers, somebody who's transforming healthcare. So just to give us some structure to kind of look at David's model, when you're looking at someone who wants to join and they have to apply and they have to meet certain qualifications and everything else, what's the structure that you're looking that this addition to our healthcare network is a real plus? What makes a healthcare entrepreneur a plus in your network? So I think for purposes of also our listeners, I think it'll be great for Dave to kind of answer a couple of these questions because I think it really comes down to two things is what is the entrepreneur's mindset 
And what is the entrepreneur's health moonshot that they're working on? That seemingly impossible goal, not this year or even next year, but if we look out 10, 20, 30 years, what is it that Dave is trying to achieve with his company and my guess is his life's work? Because it seems like as a serial entrepreneur, and Dave, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background for context. The mission that you wake up every day working on is a health moonshot. We'd love to hear what that is, unpack it. And as I'm listening, and as you're listening, Dan, I think Dave's the perfect model for this. The health transformer mindset is going to come out in all of his communication. It's that passionate, excited, ambitious entrepreneur who is confident about his ability to achieve that long-term goal working on it every day. So let's start with that, Dave. Get background, and then what is it the, your moonshot that you're trying to achieve? So I moved down here from Canada when I was 30 years old, so in 1995, in the middle of the biggest fib I've ever told, which was, don't worry, honey, I have a plan. And I had no plan. <laughs> it was so darn complex, complicated, hard, and not transparent, the U.S. healthcare system. And I was already practicing in the Canadian healthcare system for five years. So I thought I had a bit of a handle on it, but I didn't. So my background before that was I wanted to be an engineer. But I wasn't quite smart enough for the school I went to, which was the University of Toronto. It's a really tough engineering school, and I just couldn't cut it. I'd met this pretty girl two weeks earlier on a tour of the University of Toronto, and she smiled at me, so I decided to change all my classes over to her pre-med courses. Next thing you know, I'm in healthcare. It was a very reasonable thing to do as an 18, 19-year-old boy. Uh -huh. It sounded very reasonable at the time. And now I'm back to my using my engineering mindset that I enjoy so much. Yeah. So the thing was that your entry point into healthcare, though, you did go into healthcare and it was chiropractic. Yeah. So can you talk about that? I mean, I've done a thousand chiropractic sessions in the last 20 years, so I'm pretty familiar with what it is. It's a very engineering-based understanding of the human body. Definitely. I like that part of it. What I didn't like about it, and I think it made me not very good, was I didn't like the repetitiveness of it. So I like to design new things all the time. And so that can be problematic after a while. My wife's a family physician. I went into chiropractic. And that's the pretty girl, wasn't it? She's a pretty girl. Yeah, that's uh, that was the pretty girl. <laughs> 1983 or 82, somewhere around. Yeah. So we've, yeah. we've always gone to school together, worked together, built businesses together. I can't even imagine a day where... So when I came down here, I thought I was just going to learn the U.S. healthcare system and then go participate. What I did learn or come to understand is that I couldn't learn it. Too many things didn't make sense. So what I did is I just took all the parts apart and I redesigned the system for myself. And, you know, first I did it for patients or customers of our clinic. And then we did it for our employees. I did it for some friends for free. And then I turned it into a company because I wanted my friends to pay me and none of them would. So I had to go find other customers who would pay me for the system and went from Arizona to around the country. We've got about a thousand business clients now, small, medium-sized businesses, so many in the hopper right now that are could blow us up in a very big way. But for the most part, small, medium-sized businesses who just embed our system, our capability inside their company, and then we help them turn that into retention advantage recruiting advantage, workers' comp cost reduction advantage, cost containment advantages. We have a whole recruiting department because many of my clients don't know how to use the capability we give them of being able to offer free health care to all their employees and their family very affordably, meaning the employer pays all of it, and we help them turn it into a return on investment. So there's some engineering of the system and the capabilities inside their business. And now we've got some much bigger companies asking us to embed our capabilities inside their healthcare solutions yeah. also, which is the evolution that was drawn out in 2015 that I can't tell you I ever really believed we'd get here, but COVID has accelerated yeah. something that if it was going to happen, might've been happening three years from now. Now I think it's going to happen in about three months. So just so we don't bury the lead there, because I think you got to it at the end with the notion of what is redirect health today? And then I want to hear what you believe redirect health will be 25 years from now. And what does success look like to you? Healthcare is unaffordable to most people and most employers. Now, if I include government and corporations, the social security stats say that 51% of American workers make $15 an hour or less. There's zero money left over after food, transportation, and shelter. Zero left over. There's no money there. And the employer's 
small business owners are in the same boat. If you take out the corporations and the government, you're about 80% of workers are $15 an hour or less. And that doesn't make out they're affordable if you're 16 or 20. My point is, it's such a small percentage of American families that can afford healthcare without the government or their employer, usually a big corporation subsidizing it. Small guys can't do it. So that's the problem we set out to solve because that was us. And the way we solved it, and this is what we do at our core, is we've developed a whole system that is only effective if it eliminates unnecessary activity, unnecessary cost, such that the entire cost of healthcare is dropped to about a third of what it is today so that the employers can then embed that capability in their businesses and then turn it into a business advantage for them. Yeah. And now what's happening is bigger organizations are taking our capability and embedding it into their healthcare solutions to help them lower their costs so that they can lower their prices or go into other markets. Yeah. Just to give a little bit of social proof here, I had an advantage because I saw David every 90 days at his strategic coach workshop, and he kind of walked me through it. And we're using a concept right now, you know, in coach, and I think it's going to be a big one. Steve, you and I talked about this, and that was the notion that entrepreneurs to bring brand new things in the world actually create new intellectual shortcuts. So what David showed me in rough form was a circle and it was divided into three. It almost looked like a Mercedes logo. And he said, you know, everybody thinks healthcare is three things. It's management. I won't use the word, but he said, then there's all the testing and everything like that. And then there's the actual healthcare. And he said, the problem is that healthcare is one of those things as the technology has gotten greater the price has gone up where in every other industry in the marketplace, when the technology gets better, the price comes down. He says, why is this? And he says, well, it's because what's in those other two parts. There's the healthcare, the one third of the circle is healthcare. The other one is the cost of management. And the other one is just the wastage of unnecessary tests, unnecessary procedures. He says, what we do is we start our system with say, how do we get the best possible healthcare with the minimum amount of add-ons to it? So I think I'm repeating this back in a way that you won't have to correct me, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think every industry has its core value and waste and administration. And the waste and administration, this is a part that was a big light bulb for me, a big epiphany when I realized that that waste and administration is somebody's revenue. And that somebody's revenue quite often is a big publicly traded company more so in the United States than Canada, and they have fiduciary to their shareholders and their share price. So that waste in administration is very important to our economy in healthcare, but it wasn't very important to my company <laughs> as a user or a purchaser of it. So I just systematically designed a new system that would create the value, but would systematically eliminate the waste of the administration. So an example of uh, administration would be a copay, right? So if you ask any user or purchaser of healthcare, what value does a copay create? There's not a lot, but if you eliminate the copay, that administration of a merchant account, a credit card bank account, the till drawer for checks and cash, the reconciliations, the person sitting in the chair, the person licking the stamp to send the statement out, there's easily 50% of the administrative cost goes away with that one domino. And there's a couple others too. Instead of making them better, just eliminate them because they create no value. So when you're talking about a whole reimagination of the experience, both for the patients and families and the companies, so both sides of that, I want to kind of zoom out and we'll zoom back in. Zoom out and look at this a couple of decades from now. What's the impact you're trying to really make with this? I mean, I think you described a lot of the pain points that we have today as patients or as entrepreneurs or CEOs building companies, but what impact does this make down the line if you really play it out and scale it to what you are dreaming about. It makes healthcare free for people that cannot even come close to affording it today. Healthcare is not expensive. It is the wasted administration that is so expensive. Can we unpack that a little bit? You said the word free. You didn't say cheaper. You said free. I want to understand your Okay, so there. free from the perspective of the purchaser and the user. So you got to follow me on this. There's going to be a day in the future. It already exists today, just people don't know about it. But there's a day in the future where people actually know about this. Any business in America today 
can get healthcare so effective and so efficient and so inexpensive that they would want to because of just free market advantages they'll gain by giving it to their employees and their employees' families for free to the employees and their families. So that's free there because the employers gave it to them. But the reason the employers will give it to them is because of the business advantage they get. And maybe it's local, maybe it's regional, maybe it's global where they get the advantage. We take the cost of healthcare out of our American cars. It's a game changer for the American car industry. And they could do it today if they wanted to. They just don't know how to do it. They're in an old system and there's other dynamics in play. Is it really free if the employer is paying for it? Well, what if the employer can turn that business advantage into a two to one or three to one or four to one return on that investment? If they spend a million dollars on healthcare, but they gain $4 million in productivity, in lowered work comp costs or lowered recruiting costs or lower retention and retraining costs and better core value alignment, which might be a little fuzzier to monetize. But that's how you make this free, by re-engineering how we think about it from the purchasers and users' perspective. And nobody in the industry wants to do that because we're all vendors and the vendors want to think about it from their perspective. The purchasers and users are left out of that equation. But when they work together, they can totally create that collaborative synergy where it's free to both of them. Right. It's an investment for the purchaser where they make money doing it. Mm-hmm. You couldn't convince me to stop paying for my employees' health care, every cent of it, because of how much return I get. First of all, I can appreciate it because I'm in both systems, um, both citizenships, and our company is in both countries. So I really understand it. So I'd like you to combine the best of both systems because the Canadian system, which is a great system, first of all, everybody in Canada has health care insurance. There's nobody who does not have health care. And the way it's paid for is, you know, what the payroll is for every employer in Canada, 1.8% of that goes to health care. And I say it's really cheap until it gets up to Babs and me. You know, like, you know, 1.8% of all uh, salary in our company is really cheap until you include Babs and Dan, and then it gets gets really expensive. Mm -hmm. What it lacks is it's kind of like an 80% system. So 80% of what ails you, the Canadian system can handle. It's the specialties. It's the special surgeries, the special things. It doesn't get really expensive above that. It just becomes non-available. Whereas the Northwestern University Hospital, where our main center is in the United States, it's one of the top 10 healthcare centers in the United States. And you make a call and you're plugged in. You just go. Things that might take eight weeks to even get a first appointment in Canada, it's can you come the day after tomorrow? You know, so that's a wonderful system if you can write the check. And the other thing is that it'll respond very, very fast to you where the Canadian system won't respond that quickly to you, normally speaking. You know. So how do you take the two, David? How do you take the two that everybody's covered? You know, it's never an issue within our company about healthcare. Everybody's got healthcare. If they leave and go someplace else, the healthcare covers them. If they go to another place in the country, the healthcare covers them. So they got that. But the other thing is the response of the special requirements. So I think your question is about just how is the Canadian system different than the U.S. and what are the good in each yeah. and how do you yeah. combine them? Yeah. The first thing to think about is let's define the Canadian healthcare system or any healthcare system. There's a hundred ways you can do it, but here's a really simple way. The healthcare and the financing of it. Those are the two parts of it. When they come together and they work together, that's the system. And there's middlemen between to make sure the healthcare and the financing work together. So just consider that the system. Whoever controls the money controls the output of the system. Let's start there. Right? So in Canada, who controls the money? The Canadian government. There's really good healthcare. There might not be a lot of it, might not be available because of the lineups and the queues and the limited resources, but the Canadian government is financing it or a provincial government which means they control the output of the system. Well, the output of the system then is happy citizens that are proud of their healthcare system. That is the output of that system. Take the American system now, where there's much more healthcare here, and you can make the argument that it's better because they get to practice things more, but let's just say there's more healthcare in the United States, but there's also a financing system here. And let's take the government out of it because the insurance companies now 
they're collaborating with the government now with the Medicare Advantage plan. So it's called the insurance industry is the financing part of healthcare in the United States. So if they're the financing part, they get to decide the whole system that contains the healthcare and the financing, what the output of that system is and what dictates an effective system. And their fiduciaries to shareholders and share price. So we have a U.S. healthcare system that's main effectiveness is judged by shareholder value, by share price, by stock price. So let's start with that. All I did is I said, okay, I know the limitations U.S. healthcare system are money is expense because it's not about the consumer in the United States. It's about shareholders. I know in Canada, the problem is about access to care because it's not about the consumer. It's about the government getting their narrative that we have a great healthcare system and people continue to pay their taxes and be proud of it. There's pride over mm-hmm. it. But both have limitations. The U.S., it's about cost, and Canada, it's about access. So what I did is I said, if I just change the financing piece, I'll take the U.S. healthcare system, and I'll create a new finance piece with some of the traditional but also non-traditional ways of putting it together, self-funded principles, where the businesses under the federal law of ERISA in the United States become the insuring entity, take the big guys out of it, don't let them control data, don't let them control the networks of doctors, don't let them control the rules, just create a new financing system, which is much smaller and leaner and cleaner, and attach it to the U.S. healthcare. And now we have a new system called Redirect Health that has our own financing using the employers, purchasers of healthcare with the traditional community of healthcare, hospitals, doctors, et cetera, drugs, And we just created a brand new system by creating a new financial piece to it Mm -hmm. or driver. Now, because the financial piece is owned and driven by the purchaser of the healthcare, the whole system is obligated to serve them. So the effectiveness has nothing to do with shareholders, nothing to do with government. It has to do with what the purchasers want, the money. And what they say they want is affordable healthcare that's easy for my employees to use. And I don't want this burden on healthcare in my company. You're a simplifier. Yeah. Yeah. I am a very much a simple part. I've realized over the years that I've got a technique. So Dave, when are you in the perfect zone with the perfect client or prospect that quickly gets it? Who is that person in an organization and what is it that you're saying to them? Or when is the example of the best way you've said it to them, explained it in the quickest period of time so they got it and you were off to the races? I love it when I can stay in my unique ability and that's when I'm using our system and our capabilities to get rid of their problems. So when I'm doing that and I have somebody who lets me do that and not everyone will let me do that, but when I'm in that situation, I'm I'm in the zone. I love it. You know, the qualifiers for somebody to do really well with our capabilities, our service, number one, the leader has to make a decision that their workforce is high stakes not the HR person, not anyone else. The leader has to say, this is my job. The first clue that I'm in the wrong room is when the leader is saying, just talk to my HR person. Am I broke? I mean, I can't wait to get out of that room. That's the opposite of my zone. I want the leader that's asking questions about, all right, then what do I do? Then what do I get? That's the leader I want. And when they realize that by going from typically small business, especially they'll have 30% of their employees who can maybe afford the healthcare, definitely 50 to 70% cannot afford it. And they realize the advantages their business would get if they had 80, 90% of their whole company without this burden of healthcare. And the leader recognizes the advantages they get. I'm in my sweet zone. I want to be part of it. If anything, I have to hold off and let my team handle that. But once I become aware of that leader, I'm always finding creative ways to inject myself into that conversation. So I suspect that's my zone when I find that leader who wants to collaborate with us and our capabilities to grow their companies. What you've introduced is tremendous transparency, price transparency into the system. I just have an example. I have cartilage missing in my left knee and I was going to a new surgeon in Etobicoke. I don't want surgery right now, but they do have new pain relief and new things that actually work on it. It doesn't hurt when I'm not stressing it. So it's not a a lifestyle inconvenience for me, but sometimes exercise can do it. So I wanted to join this and I had to have an MRI and send an MRI to even get an appointment. Now that brings us against the Canadian problem because MRIs 
and clinics and machines and technicians are in short supply in the Canadian system. So I called David's office because we're in redirect health as far as our U.S. company is concerned. And he gave me immediately the name of a clinic, not very, very far from our Toronto office. And the cost of the MRI was $281. I remember it. And then I did a little investigation of what it would have cost me downtown. Same skill of technician, actually probably better because they're doing this nonstop day in, day out. Same equipment, same delivery of product. It was $281 out near our office, but downtown it would have been $1,750. The difference between the $281 and the $1,750 was management and waste. Yeah, people can charge anything they want if somebody will pay it. Yeah. And in the U.S., if you attach a really good insurance policy to it, it'll be $8,000. Yeah. The MRI to figure out what's going on in your brain is somewhat of a commodity. Right when something's a commodity, they should be much cheaper. Yeah. But the public cannot yeah. tell the difference, so they want the highest quality of everything. And the only way they know to judge quality is by the price. A seventeen hundred and fifty dollar MRI must be higher quality than the two hundred eighty one. No, they're identical. But what might be different is the interpretation, and that's where you might want to spend money to get a couple opinions on something, depending on. Yeah how important getting the decision right is. That's where the public struggles. So part of the capability that we embed inside is using data to be able to predict and anticipate where healthcare needs gonna be and the probabilities that go with being right or wrong in making our decisions and then creating outreach programs for folks so that their diabetes is managed with the highest probability of success, their asthma, their sore knees, their backs, whatever it is, their cancer, and then taking care as much as possible outside of a brick and mortar and be very very strategic on the data and the information. When they need the brick and mortar, make sure they go a straight line to the right place with the fair price. Dave, I want to just use that as a launch point to free zone podcast. And, you know, the people I believe are going to be listening for the free zone element of what you're describing. And I want to just, again, go back up 50,000 feet Getting out of the details of this, in the last six months, everything has changed for everyone around the world. The difference between having this conversation, let's say in January or February of this year, and now having it in September, October of this year, radically different, I believe, for so many reasons. What do you think has changed most significantly in your conversations, not just with the company or the organization you're speaking to, but maybe even the patients and their experiences. Is there a radical difference between six months ago and today? Because of the fear of going outside your house with COVID, people used to say, I'm going to go see the doctor first. And then if we had to, we'll just talk on the phone. If we had to, we'll just do a, a video conference. If we have to, we'll do something else. Now it's the first thing is virtual. So it's virtual first. No need for a brick and mortar. But when that brick and mortar is needed, it is now become the secondary thing. So in Redirect Health, we've been virtual first since 2008. And in my own organization, I had to separate my clinic functions. I have clinics here in Phoenix from the membership business around the country. I had to separate them because my clinic folks would not accept virtual first for 12 years. And I'd write their paychecks and they wouldn't accept it. So I had to separate them or they would not allow the innovator's dilemma, Clay Christensen, right? Wouldn't allow this other business to even exist. Today, the providers, the physicians, clinicians inside my clinics are embracing at a very high level, virtual first. Steve, what's your reports from the the front lines? Yeah, everything's changed. I think the biggest thing is that innovation, which, you know, Dave's been, how long have you been building Redirect, Dave? I'm 56, so probably... 55 years? No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How long have you been building the company, though? How long has Redirect been around? Oh, 2013, we started. It took me a year to get my okay. first, my sale. Yeah. Okay. So Dave's a perfect example. For the last decade or so, there have been hundreds, if not thousands. There are really thousands of entrepreneurs all around the world. We're tracking about 10,000 entrepreneurs trying to reimagine healthcare. And they were up against, as Dave even explained really well, this very bureaucratic, very cash flow driven model that's been kind of almost like molasses in resisting any new innovation to make it more efficient, to make it better. Part of it was the actual way the money flowed, 
but a bigger part of it was the mindset of the leadership of CEOs of big companies, not just the big companies that employ thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, but the payers, the providers, the pharmaceutical companies, the government leadership were entrenched with the wrong mindset or a mindset that didn't embrace innovation in the way that every other industry kind of was forced to. And so the pandemic forced this to go from a want to a need. And now everybody's playing catch up to the adoption of the innovation, which has been around for a while. Dave's company is not new and people are now willing to listen and willing to engage. One of the metrics that I reference often is that big hospital systems like the Cleveland Clinic or Northwell in January or February had really adoption of six, 7% telemedicine and digital health. And it wasn't because they weren't a lot of those solutions, a lot of those companies not knocking on their door, not trying to get in and providing it. It was that nobody wanted to, within the rank and file of the organization, embrace it and use it. Well, one of the big things that they, they didn't get paid for telemedicine appointments. They didn't get paid for it, right. You know, that came in very quickly when COVID started. Yeah. I agree with you that mindset is a big driver here, where we might have a disagreement. What came first, mindset or flow of money? I happen to believe the flow of money created the mindset. And if you change the flow of money, the mindset's Sure, absolutely. So within weeks, though, after the pandemic kind of took hold in, you know, let's call it March, April, you know, it shifted to now like 95, 96, 7% digital adoption telemedicine and other things because of the need. We have a company that was trying for several years to create a way for patients and doctors to communicate in the actual doctor office to not allow patients to wait hours for a doctor by creating a way for it to be Uberized where the patient can go walk around the neighborhood and show up exactly when the doctor's ready to see them. And the doctor doesn't have to worry that cutting it that close is a problem because they can see where the patient is. And for years, she was trying to get doctors to hospitals to embrace it. Mm -hmm. It went from a nice to have to a need to manage traffic safely in doctor's offices where there's physical limitations to social distancing. And so all of a sudden, she went from struggling to build a flow of sales opportunities and solutions to almost the opposite, which is she just now needs to prioritize them and scale up to it. And I think Dave's articulated just a kind of breakthrough moment for healthcare on the provider side, but also on the patient side to really expect more from the experience. And I think that has ushered in a treasure trove of opportunities for entrepreneurs. And I think the winner is going to be the patients and the families that benefit from better care, better access in the case of what Dave just described, hopefully one day free healthcare. I started off by thinking about, okay, let me try to predict what's going to happen and make sure I'm aligning my company and our capabilities so it can plug into that prediction. That's incredibly hard because part of that prediction is timing of things. And you got so many people in psychologies and fear involved. The prediction is going to be hard. And it's hard to invest a lot of money in something where the probability of being right is uncertain. So that's why I used to think about it at the beginning of COVID is I need to predict the future. I don't think that way anymore. A matter of fact, I reject that thinking because it was too expensive, too hard, and it was too slow. The thinking we have now is how do we redesign our system so that we can adjust? So we can adjust and we can get rid of the problems that will happen in the future. And I feel much more at peace. I love the confidence and capability of knowing that whatever problem comes in the future, we've got the playbook already designed and practiced where we just apply it to any problem and that problem will mm-hmm. first be eliminated and if not, will at least be solved. So you've built Redirect on, it seems like maybe dozens, if not hundreds of collaborations with different people, organizations, and parts of the quote-unquote system. Would that be kind of an accurate statement? Yes, many. Built on lots of collaborations. So let's simplify this for a minute and go back to the question Dan asked at the beginning, which is how would we assess this from the perspective of Dave and Redirect? At the end of the day, you're working on one of our 12 moonshots called Cost to Zero, right? And that's a big idea to get around. You dissolve the problem with multiple different pieces, multiple collaborations. But at the end of the day, you're working on reducing the cost of healthcare to zero, period. Now, how you do it's a whole other story. But at the end of the day, that's what you're doing. That's about as ambitious as you can get. And the question simply becomes, 
what are your three biggest obstacles mm -hmm. that need to be eliminated to get in there? I'm not talking about tomorrow morning. I'm talking about overall, what do you need to do this year, mm -hmm. next year? What do you need to do to eliminate all of the three challenges that are either you or your team are dealing with today to kind of move the dial forward so you can capture that massive mm -hmm. opportunity? We've already got it to zero. So any business we work with, we can show them how to get it to zero if they'll deploy the whole system. Now, many businesses aren't ready to deploy the whole system at the beginning. They just want to deploy the one part of it. But we are three weeks away. We're in the beta now, and it looks really good, but three weeks away using the technology build that we've just finished and now are testing of going from, let's say, 500 a month to 5,000 a month with the same resources. So in order to scale, we've got to be able to bring on 5,000. Now, yesterday, I just heard about a client with 20,000 people that just said yes to us. So I don't have a mechanism to enroll 20,000 people. So my obstacle is before I'm even finished testing the 5,000 a month version, I've got to go to my whole technology team, which now is about 15 people, and go, hey, guys, good job. But now we've got to get to 20,000 per month within the next, I don't know whether it'll be three months or six months, but those are the challenges I'm having right now is just how to tell the story better to the better client. Stephen, you were asking about the free zone aspect. So I have a 10 times client in Toronto. He's got young kids right now, so he's been really busy at home. So he hasn't signed up for the free zone, but he creates software. He's a software maker and his main thing was airlines and the COVID has gotten him to redirect his thinking about other industries because the big people will not be paying for this right now. But here's what he did just before COVID, and it was one of the major airlines in the world. And he has a software, and it has to deal with when they get delays and cancellations and postponements in their system. So the big system, they have hubs, and if the hub is down, the whole system is disadvantaged. So the average that they could do of rebooking people was 100 people a minute. That was the best that their system could do. His software, they actually did it in an actual real-life situation, and he rebooked people, and it's on their cell phone. So the sign appears delayed or canceled, and one minute later, it's on your cell phone. It actually calls you and says, you I have been rebooked on this fight within 60 seconds, and he did 23,000 in one minute. Okay, so here's my feeling. I don't know whether this is an opportunity for you or not an opportunity for David, but I think that there are people who are solving problems of complexity and speed in other fields that probably a collaboration between you and them is really the answer. And that's where the free zone comes in because people are dealing with these issues in many, many different areas of life and especially right now. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about that is my CTO, who's been with me now for about a year and a half, he came out of the energy cost containment industry. And before that, he was in healthcare many years ago. He was involved in writing the initial HIP obviously laws many, many years ago. But for the last, say, dozen years, he's been in the energy system cost containment. So there's so much overlap yeah. with this concept of where's the value and how do you redesign the system to extract the value, but systematically and intentionally suppress yeah. the waste in the administration. So he's leading that right now, and he's got the capability of working offshore that I don't have. And bringing another industry in has been instrumental for well, us. Well, you know, it's faster, easier cheaper, but also much bigger result. I mean, that's what a bypass is that you're creating. Yeah, I don't think I could have designed the system we have with the software that we have with somebody who is already familiar with healthcare. Yeah, this is the going across borders that I think is really clear. Sounds to me, Steve, like David would be a good speaker at your annual conference, which is now going to be virtual, I suspect. <laughs> It is. The only thing that makes what we do differently with our conference and our programs is got to be an investor in these companies. So we've been talking to Dave and haven't caught up in a little while about his fundraising as he's raising capital, but we build and qualify all of our engagement with all of our companies as we want to be aligned on incentives and aligned on helping the companies build. So I look forward to not only having David do that within the startup health community, but I think what he's really trying to do with Cost is Zero is such an important message that needs to get out there not just to the 
big companies that he's talking about, the individuals who benefit from it even more so, because I would think that armed with the right materials, you'd have employees going to their employers asking for this, almost begging for this. So I've got an overall question for both of you. So the two areas of cost in the United States that have not gone down as a result of technology over the last 25 years are health and education. Okay. So I was trying to think, well, why is that? And I think that from my standpoint of, you know, looking at it as an outsider, the reason is these are the two areas that have the most complexity of issues. I'm not talking complexity of industry issues, but the complexity of societal issues, these two areas. So if you think about healthcare, and I'll use healthcare because that's our topic right here, it seems to me that fundamentally it's a moral issue. And when you have morality as one of the considerations when you're thinking about the future of an industry, it instantly includes everyone. Everybody's got a moral viewpoint. It's ideological. You know, is it good to give people free stuff? It's an ideological. The other thing is, it's an economic issue. Can we grow it without really rewarding people for the growth? In other words, can people make really, really big profits with it? So if you go down the line, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's intellectual. Can you reflect on that? Healthcare is a very dense industry. It just has so many different issues. Certainly it's political. We know it's totally political. Education is the same way. And I don't think any other industries have the complexity of these two areas. And maybe a lot of the costs really are because of the complexity of issues that are coming there. I love this topic, though. This is a topic I think about all the time. My take on the U.S. healthcare system, particularly, where I'm much more expert than Canadian or English or anywhere else, and education, but I also am going to throw in there the political industry of politics. These are the only three industries I can think of where the purchaser and user are purposely pulled apart so the vendors can do something. The business owner works with the insurance companies and brokers, and the user works with the doctors and the drug companies, right? And they're pulled apart, but who makes all the money? The vendors on both sides. So there's advantage in technology and rules and regulations are used to keep them apart. And education is very similar. The kid who's using does not pay for their education. Mm -hmm. And if you ever want to challenge that, ask a kid, figure it out and go, hey, that hour just cost $215. Did you get $215 value of it? Or how many, just keep track of the number of hours in the next week that you get $215 of value from, and you won't get a kid that even checks the box once, right? I've done it with my own adult kids. There's no way they would pay for that amount. Mm -hmm. So when the purser and user are separated, the costs always go up. The vendors always have advantage. In politics, it's the same thing, right? The voter is the user, the money, wherever, the PACs or somebody else. The other thing I want to hit on real quick, Dan, is the concept of free is sometimes a bad thing and free market is a good thing, and people should pay, and I get that. Where healthcare is a little different, mm-hmm. maybe a lot different in some places. If I want to buy an apple and you double the price, instead of buying two apples, I'll buy one, or maybe I'll buy oranges. If you have the price, I might buy a bushel, right? So I can do that. I can make those choices. But if I'm having a baby and you raise the price, am I going to like hold it in? No. And if you lower the price, am I going to have two babies or have two appendixes taken out? It doesn't quite fit the model. Yeah. Right. It doesn't quite fit. And there's fear and uncertainty. And there's so much complexity that the system counts on in order to create the hidden cost of time and money. Yeah. And both that complexity and hidden costs are used for shareholders yeah. or getting more government money in the form of loans and education, right? To get more votes in the case of politics. So I don't see it being an ethical challenge that way. I see it the other way. I think it's unethical. Um, I don't know the difference in ethical and moral, so forgive me for that. But I just think it's not quite right that we live in a country like America where like the basics of healthcare are not treated, treated like a privilege. So in my family, my children are not entitled to a nice house and healthcare and food, but they certainly are privileged because they're part of my family. Mm-hmm. And in America, the same thing. I think we're privileged with things that other countries aren't because we're American. doesn't mean we're entitled to it. I do think entitlement can have some danger to it. The concept that it's a right, I don't understand that really well, mm-hmm. but the concept of privilege, I see healthcare in the United States as we get cost to zero. It's a privilege to be in the United States. We're going to get 
this quality of healthcare is here. We've already got it here. People don't believe it. Matter of fact, people are upset when I say we've already got it there. So forgive me if, if I'm upsetting anybody out there by saying cost of zero is already happening. My feeling is that things don't become ideologically acceptable until they're economically possible. Yeah. And this has been a fascinating conversation, but I think it underscores the complexity of what we're talking about here and the real opportunity that I think the pandemic has ushered in globally. And I think the media, not the media as an industry, but media as a technology and tool has become the opportunity to democratize access to this information. Yeah. And to the extent we could democratize access to what you just described, Dave, in a way that a third grader could understand or an eighth grader could understand it so that we're not trying to make a logical leap for them. We're just trying to make sure that they have full access to whether it be cost, whether it be how this whole thing works. And I think that is what the spot showed us with the pandemic, the global inequities in access to the information, to the data, to all of these things is a big part of the beginning of the changing of the way the healthcare system and the education system works. We could see with our children using Zoom and trying to have a class and seeing all the things that have been unlocked there, both the challenges and the opportunities, but I think we're seeing in healthcare as well. A huge free zone opportunity for entrepreneurs to kind of lean into. Clearly, Dave, you've been at the forefront of this for a long time. And I think the accelerant has just been laid out for all of us in this sector to lean in and make sure that we don't go backwards, but the door is definitely wide open. You know, I love how you said the third grade level. It reminded me of when my daughter, who's grown now, but she was in high school, she was giving me a little lip over something. And I ended up with, you don't even know what I do. That's what I said to her. And she goes, I know what you do. So I tell you, what do I do? And she says, and I'm ready to get in a debate with her like we have. She's real, real clever and we have fun with this. But she goes, you get rid of the dumb stuff and you don't overspend on things. And I went, uh, uh, yeah, that's it. You win. <laughs> so that's the simplest I've ever heard it said is by my 10th grade daughter, get rid of the dumb stuff and don't overspend. Yeah. And that was her take on what she so, heard me doing yeah. and saw me doing. Love it. Love yeah. it. Well, thank you very much, David. Go ahead, Steve. I was going to ask you your biggest insight as you listen to both David describe this, but also your thinking about your own experience, what your biggest insight was, because I had one, but I wanted to hear yours first, and then we'll wrap up with David having the last word. My feeling is that there are lots of entrepreneurs who have really better ways of doing things, but when they don't really take it seriously, the actual better way of doing that, they don't take it seriously but they don't take themselves seriously as a person who can actually introduce this into the marketplace. It's almost like it's a non-recognition of their own uniqueness and the unique value that they can actually create for other people. And what I love so much about working, you know, in the Free Zone Frontier program with David and with Steve, and that is you do take yourself seriously and you do take your better way of doing things seriously too and you're willing to bet your future on it. That's what we want to encourage and that's what we want to attract to the Free Zone Frontier program is that double confidence. You know how to improve this and you're the someone who can do the improving. Well said, Dan. Dave, listening to you describe your unique ability earlier on how you don't eliminate, you dissolve these problems I think you outlined what I think has been six, maybe even 10 or 15 or lifetime of work to simplify how it all works. Now, if you could think of communicating that as your next big challenge, how do you simplify and dissolve that wall of complexity and how simple you have made eliminating the cost of healthcare? And so can you take on that challenge now to say, you know, you've done all the hard work. Now it's the last piece. Simplify the communication, dissolve the challenge that people have understanding it, that it's already there. And it seems like you've got the biggest accelerant of Redirect's life. That is the focus right now, designing that system. In Free Zone, I presented to the group the concept of being the simplifier that gets a lot of joy out of simplifying and simplifying and then simplifying more and simplifying more and discarding something so I can start all over simplifying. I enjoy doing that. I love doing that. So I've also created a system now that attracts multipliers. Yes. Where I don't have to attract just the best multipliers. I can attract 
hundreds and or thousands of multipliers and let them show me which ones want to communicate our product. Yeah. So we've done that with a whole system we'll get into right now. But that is top of my mind. Yeah. That's the multiplying part of it, where I've simplified an attraction of multipliers through a series of online stores that help them embed our capability into whatever project they want to work on so they can participate in our mission of eliminating costs in healthcare. So it's available to everyone for free, essentially, but do it in their marketplace, do it in their way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I see us also embedding this capability in people's legacy. So people will figure out that their businesses that they're creating will be their legacy. And if we can help build, just embed our capabilities into their businesses and make their legacies bigger, better, faster, more exciting, I see that happening too. And we've got some partners now where I didn't make that up on my own. They just come to me and said, this is incredible. I had a broker come to me yesterday on Zoom call and said, hey, I just want to tell you, I have never gotten thank yous from a client in 20 years. I get them all the time when I get them in the redirect health. And he said, I never knew how much I would appreciate thank yous from my clients. It made me tear up a little bit because it reminded me of why I do this. And when I recognize why I do it, it was one of my employees first. And then I've heard it now about five times since. And I crave this because it makes me feel so good. But she said to me, you know, I never imagined that I'd ever feel this confident that I can take care of my children. And I go, what does that mean? Well, my family never saw doctors. Never in my family has anyone be able to see doctors. And here I got a job and I can take my babies in anytime I want. And I know that if anything happens tomorrow, I'm okay. So she's basically telling me that what we had given her, an employee first, was the ability to believe she was a great mom. And then I've heard it about four or five times since mm -hmm. from members and every time it moves me when I hear it. Yeah. There's nothing that I've experienced Beautiful. that moves me more than somebody telling me that they feel like a better mom because of our capability or a better dad. Yeah, well, David, it's transformational rather than transactional. Yeah. Well, this is great. I get off here at an employee, but not as much as a mom or a dad. Yeah. That's 10x on an employer saying it. Yeah, yeah. Well... Dave, Dan, this is great conversation. I think there's probably 10 other conversations that could come as byproducts of this conversation. But what you've built, David, is amazing. Obviously, a model for not just other free zoners, but other health transformers and entrepreneurs looking at how you can take something that seems almost impossible to achieve and within a matter of years, reimagine and recreate an entire new system to work from. So congratulations. That's really great. And thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. And both of you have been very, very helpful to me and useful over the years, decades, really. So thank you very much. Thank you. Too. you have no idea how much the various conversations have influenced my thinking and confidence. So thank you. Thanks, David.